Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode of the Cato podcast, I sit down with Gene Ramirez, who was an original Cato board member. Gene has been practicing law as an attorney for decades and has spent the majority of that time defending law enforcement. I asked Gene to join me to discuss how he got involved in Cato and his thoughts on recently introduced legislation in California to ban the use of bite dogs in law enforcement. Gene has been watching similar trends across the United States, and I really wanted his perspective as this new law worked its way through the California legislature. A brief disclaimer, we recorded this podcast the day after the draft legislation went public, so there will be a lot more information to come. I hope you enjoy the show. And I would like to take a moment to thank two Cato Gold sponsors for supporting the work that Cato does throughout California. Thank you to NAG Industries and Aardvark Tactical. NAG Industries is a premier provider for a variety of government sales products like Vortex Optics, Garmin, Streamlight, and many other brands. From breaching tools and training to the latest in pickleball gear, there's a good chance NAG Industry carries it. Check them out at nagindustries.com. I would also like to thank Aardvark Tactical, who's been a steadfast supporter for many years. While Aardvark is famous for their signature Project 7 scalable plate carrier system, Sejin Robot, Low-Key Drone, and Kinetic Breaching Tool, they also offer customized integrated solutions to meet a wide variety of supply needs, such as complete crowd control kits, IED detection, less lethal, and many others. To learn more, check out aardvarktactical.com. Work-life balance is something we all struggle with in our line of work and especially with the people who listen to this podcast. For those of you who enjoy getting away by spending some time on the lake, casting a line, our podcast sponsor is for you. Cope's Tackle and Rod Shop has been in business since 2015 and carries all of your fishing needs. They are veteran-owned and are proud supporters of Cato and our listeners of the Cato podcast. Check out their website at tackleandrod.com, enter discount code Cato at checkout, and get 10% off your purchase and get free shipping on anything over $75. Cato is a nonprofit organization that exists to serve law enforcement so they can train their departments and make their communities safer. One of the ways we do this is through support from businesses like Cope's Tackle and Rod. So consider supporting businesses that support us. On this episode of the Cato Podcast, I am sitting down in person with the famous Gene Ramirez, who many of you know from the countless presentations at the Cato Conference, as well as the uh, Cato Team Leader SWAT Commander course, Tactical Liability course, and several of you listening, I know, have had Jim represent you as a civil defense attorney would be the best term I, I would use, but Gene was also an original plank holder of Cato, and he is the last plank holder to uh, leave the board this year or last year since we're recording this in February. So I kind of wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about the progression you saw in Cato and the law enforcement community as a whole and tell us a little bit about how you initially got involved in Cato and how you ended up where you are today as you and I enjoy beautiful uh, Placer County, Northern California today. Well, thank you for inviting me. First of all, uh, I'm one of the lucky people in this world who gets to enjoy what he actually does for a living. I actually started law enforcement in 1981 as a level one reserve for the city of Whittier. So a shout out to everybody at city of Whittier. 
in about 1985, I got married and I had to make a choice. Am I going to become a full-time regular because I was a level one reserve or am I just going to get through law school? My original aspiration was to be an FBI agent. So I wanted a law enforcement background, wanted to get my law degree and then join the FBI and do fun things. Wear a suit and carry a gun. That's what I thought life would be all about. However, life changes, as we all know. I got married in law school. We had our first daughter. And so things kind of changed. When I graduated, I ended up becoming an LA County Deputy DA. And I loved being a Deputy DA. Deputy DA, I loved prosecuting uh, criminals and doing what I could to protect our community. After a couple of years of doing that, in 1989, my twins were born. My wife was a teacher at the time. I was a, a government servant at the time, and my wife suggested kind of strongly that maybe I should leave and make some money. I hated the idea of leaving the DA's office because I was really having a good time. I tried my first murder case 18 months after I passed the bar, uh, which is a little unusual, and I was enjoying my time, but I realized my family came first and I needed to do what I needed to do. So I left and I joined a private law firm. I left the DA's office on a Friday and I started this private law firm on a Monday. And the very first case I had was a canine case of the LA County Sheriff's Department canine services detail. And that's what got me into the world of canine, which I still do to this day. Uh, I started working with uh, county council and other members of the uh, LA County community particularly with the Sheriff's Department, and I found that I really loved the canine cases. And I immersed myself. I even got my own Schutzen one trained Czechoslovakian German Shepherd from Adlerhorst and working with Dave Reaver, who, of course, is the dog whisperer of all time. And I was really having a good time. Then the SWAT side started getting sued, and I started representing uh, the SWAT side at SEB. From there, I started representing tactical teams elsewhere and became a consultant to a lot of agencies around the country. Well, then Ken Hubbs decided to form the California Association of Tactical Officers, and he invited me to join as their general counsel. Of course, I immediately accepted, and that began, it began my relationship with Cato. Uh, Ken and I have become very good friends over the years. In fact, Ken is an expert witness on many of my cases because he is so well-versed in the world of tactics. He writes a great expert report and he is wonderful in front of jurors. And I only recently left Cato because I thought maybe it was time for younger blood to come on, maybe someone with more of a business background to advise Cato because I am primarily in the tactics area. And I thought Cato maybe needs someone who's more practical as opposed to tactical. But I'm still around as an advisor, and obviously, I'm still representing a lot of tactical teams. Um, I love Cato. I will do whatever I can for Cato. The people I have met through Cato are all upstanding people. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that my SWAT clients, my canine clients, they're just seem to be levels above everybody else. They all want to work hard. They have an ethic that I uh, that I agree with. They want to do the right thing. And sometimes they're just thrust into these difficult situations. And it's my job to get them out of those difficult situations. And we've done well. Like I said, I've told everybody, I've won some, I've lost some, I've hung some. But we always certainly learn from what we have done in the past. And I'm trying to take those lessons learned and teach them to every class I teach. 
I want you to learn so that you don't make those same mistakes. I want to keep you out of jail. I want to keep you out of trouble and I will do whatever I can to support you. So that's kind of where I am now. Now I, I just turned 63 a couple days ago and I look back at what I've done and what I still want to accomplish. And there's still a lot more to do. And so I'm glad to be up here uh, with you, Marcus, in Placer County. We're teaching them as they transition to body-worn cameras, what to expect, how to handle it. And uh, we were here for two days a couple weeks ago. Now we're back up for two days. And what a wonderful agency. They're really into training. They're wonderful people. And uh, I'm having a great time up here. Hopefully you are as well. Yeah, I love it up here. Uh, probably since 2000. 15 or 16 i've somehow known somebody at placer county sheriff's office starting back with our region reps and uh moving all the way up to the sheriff and last year uh we had a member who is now the under sheriff and just good quality people and anytime you get a chance to spend time with good quality people you need to do it because it'll make you better so gene how many total years of practicing law and really with your focus on defending law enforcement, have you ha have you racked up? Well, I became an attorney, uh, passed a bar in 1988, and I started defending law enforcement in 1990. I started with the DA's office in 87 as a senior law clerk, passed the bar in 88. I left in March of 1990, March 9th, and I started a private law firm on March 12th, 1990. So ever since then, I've tried um, 48 jury trials, 12 criminal 36 civil. I've tried excessive force cases, canine cases, shooting cases, SWAT cases, a couple of employment cases in state and federal court. Uh, like I said, I've won some, lost some, hung some, but always learned something new. I've gone against some of the best plaintiff's trial attorneys in the country, and I've learned a lot from them. So that that being said, it, it, a major theme in Cato is learning, learning from history because we just repeat the same mistakes. Now, I'm springing this on you with no preparation. So, uh, kind of like how attorneys do sometimes in court when they don't prepare their witnesses. So, right back to this little karma. So, what do you think that, like, you just had off the top of your head, top of your head, top three things that you would give advice to listeners who are in law enforcement and are starting or even midway into their career? Uh, based on your experience defending a variety of cases and a variety of courts? Number one, know your craft. I don't care if you're patrol, working corrections, detectives, SWAT, canine, bombs, arson, explosive, whatever it is, know your craft. One of the things that we've learned in conducting jury trials, both mock trials, of which we do a quite a few, plus actual jury trials, Jurors will come back if they believe you're likable, believable, credible, and you know your craft. So that's number one, know your craft. Number two, never sacrifice your integrity no matter what. That is the only thing we all possessed, possess that we cannot trade away, give away, sell away, but yet I see that happen occasionally and it breaks my heart. Never, ever sacrifice your integrity. And number three, be able to justify the actions that you take. Just because you can doesn't mean you always should. So distilling everything I've learned over the years, I think that's my three takeaways at this point. All uh, major themes that come up 
all the time, right? All the time. Be a student of the game. Know your craft. The profession versus a job. That's it. Those who take this job seriously and see it as a profession and not just a job tend to do better than the others. Thank you. Those are all great points. So let's talk a little bit about the hot topic right now in California. Your involvement with K-9, specifically, you've been involved with the United States Police K-9 Association for a long time. And probably, I don't know, two years ago, maybe now, I think we were doing something with Cato. And and uh, I like to pick Gene's brain whenever I can, when I know it's not billable hours. <laughs> Whatever there is left to pick, yes. So, so I get what I can from him. And so one of the things we talked about was this federal kind of push across the country to get rid of police canines. And, you know, without specifically speaking to California quite yet, but I think we should get there. This last few year that that trend, where do you where do you think that trend's coming from? What's your what's your involvement nationally about canines in particularly? Where do you think that trend's coming from? Why is this happening? Unfortunately, there's a lot of handlers who have not learned their craft properly. There's a lot of agencies who don't have updated policies and procedures. There's a lot of training that is not taking place that should be taking place. I've, a, I've been talking about this for years. Everybody knows me knows I've always been worried that we're going to lose the ability to have bite dogs or apprehension dogs, however you want to term it. We're going to lose that. And I know on a nationwide basis through the USPCA and just talking around the country, I have seen this coming for a while and I've been preaching, be careful, we're going to lose our bite dogs. I know um, state of New Jersey, the former attorney general came out with a memo advocating for the elimination of bite dogs. And through the USPCA, we fought back, sent a letter to the governor asking that that did not happen and as of today, they're still allowed to have apprehension dogs. California, our former Attorney General Bassetta, came out stating that he didn't believe that we should have so-called find and bite dogs. He wanted guard and bark dogs. Other states have, such as Washington, Maryland, have made it more difficult for police service dogs to be used. And I worry about that because I'm worried that our officers and deputies are going to be hurt out there. If people hide from law enforcement, but they're given warnings to surrender, many of them do, and they should. I think we need to tighten up our deployment policies because what's going on in California right now, depending on what happens with this proposed assembly bill, could spread. And I'm already seeing it. Departments need to take it upon themselves to tighten up their deployment policies. Handlers need to make sure they know they can out their dog, either from position of safety or if they're going to take the dog off hard, they need to get that dog to release. We're seeing too many videos that I have shown to you and others in our classes where that handler can't control that dog and that dog is on the bite far too long. That's why we're going to lose bite dogs. I believe in police dogs. They save lives. And I'm worried that we're going to lose them if we don't tighten up our deployment policies. That's what scares me right now. And with this proposed Assembly Bill 742, which was announced yesterday, and my phone has been ringing off the hook today, and emails and text messages saying, Gene, what are we going to do? I'm not surprised this happened. Can we stop it? Well, 
that's up to you, handlers. Are you going to tighten up your policies, make sure that you can call your dog off safely and quickly? I can only do so much. I need to rely on our handlers to do their job. Here in California, we're talking about AB 742. Got introduced uh, earlier in the year, made headlines in early February of 23 because it's going to be part of Penal Code uh, 13653 on the use of uh, police canines. So that's that's what we're talking about here in California. But if we wind back a little bit, you mentioned the garden bark. Uh, I, re- I remember the garden bark uh, days and how we had to do garden bark, which any dog knows how to game that system. And uh, being a agitator at the time, I learned real quick how the dog can teach itself how to, I'm guarding and barking, but I'm going to do this to make you move. And now I get to bite you because that's the treat. So that goes back to a case. I think it was Chew versus Gates. Do you, do you remember that case? And is that, is that pertinent to how we got to where we are today? Yes. Chew versus Gates was an LAPD case. Danny Bunch, who's a great guy. I know him, uh, was the canine handler in that particular case. And ultimately the ninth circuit ruled in a dissenting opinion, actually, it's not even the controlling opinion, talked about departments should decide whether they should go more with a garden bark dog than a fine and bite dog. And a lot of agencies called me and said, oh my God, we're getting rid of our dogs. Calm down, everybody. We didn't lose our dogs over Chew versus Gates. And everybody gets all upset over garden bark versus fine and bite. I'll tell you right now, and anybody who's been in my classes knows that my philosophy is I don't care if you're garden bark Find and bite or sit and piss makes no difference to me. It's either a reasonable bite under Graham versus Connor at the end of the day, or it's not. I've tried several canine cases to trial in state and federal court. Never once have I engaged in a debate in front of a judge or a jury as to why our dogs are find and bite versus garden bark. Because that's irrelevant. That's a training philosophy. It depends what your deployment policy is and whether you can justify it. So it's either a good bite under Graham versus Connor or it's not. That's all I focus on. And I think if more people focused on that, we'd be better off. But that is an issue. And we all know garden bark dogs bite and fine and bite dogs can bark. It all depends upon the facts and circumstances. <laughs> yeah, it's contextual. That's a great point. Exactly. So let's let's rewind a little bit on that and, and talk about 835. So how do you feel about, uh, and, and I only have anecdotal evidence as far as every time I go to a class anywhere in the state, I just ask, you know, I just ask about, Hey, well, how has your canine policy changed as of eight thirty five? And, you know, I've talked about this because obviously you're more, more passionate because you're the one that has to defend these programs, but how should, or at least what are the considerations that if you're a canine handler today and you're listening, or you're one of the people in charge of the canine program, which at the lieutenant level can change every two years with no expertise or experience involved, what are things we should consider in regards to applying 835? Well, AB 392, which resulted in 835A being redone or reimagined, so to speak, a couple of years ago, everybody is questioning what does it really mean? Do we have a necessary standard or is it still a reasonable standard? And those are all valid questions. A lot of it depends on what is it you're doing at the time? Are you engaged in deadly force? 
Are you engaged in something less than deadly force? What county are you in? Who's your district attorney? Is it a criminal case? Is this a civil case? Are you in state court or are you in federal court? So all of these factors come into play. I, my concern is in looking at a lot of canine policies, and I've written and reviewed a lot of canine policies over the years, is most of the policies talk about you can de- deploy a dog in a serious offense. The question then is, how do you define a serious offense? If you ask 20 canine handlers what their definition of a serious offense, we're going to have 20 different answers. You put a patrol sergeant in there, put a new one in versus an experienced patrol sergeant, they're going to have different definitions. If you're on, for example, a shift with a brand new patrol sergeant, a very experienced canine handler, and you get into the debate, for example, 10851, am I going to deploy on this? Canine handlers say, oh my gosh, yes, we have to deploy. We've always deployed. The canine sergeant who's new may say, you know what? Or the patrol sergeant, I'm going to defer to this canine handler. This is an experienced person. They know what they're doing. And we may end up deploying on something that should not be a deployable situation. So there's a lot of that going on right now. We need to define what is truly a serious offense. Uh, LA County Sheriffs, I was talking to them today because of this new assembly bill. And I helped write their policy many, many years ago. And the canine lieutenant was saying, Gene, you help write this. We only deploy on very serious felony suspects. So we're already ahead of this game because we know what we're going to deploy on. We're not deploying on misdemeanors, absent maybe a 417, which can quickly turn into a 245. We're not going to go after a fraudulent check writing, which is a felony, but it's not a serious felony. Robberies, rapes, robberies, murders. That's what we're going to go after. And I think more departments should re-examine their policies and maybe tighten things up, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, and that's in, in addressing in 392 or 835 the the definition of immediacy, right? And and the difference between active and passive resistance. There's there's a lot of vague wording there. And as much as they say they defined immediacy, I, I understand what they were trying to address, and that is we can't use force on something someone might do that we have to have verifiable intelligence to, to justify our tactic. But immediacy might be a little extreme because it's, there's a lot of interpretation there. We don't have any case law yet to help us define that. And, and the goal here is that anybody listening, it's not your agency that makes the case law. Uh, Any thoughts on, deployments with dogs in particularly when it comes to immediacy versus what you know we used to talk about do you have the the intent and the present ability and that's still true but then we added necessary and then we added active and immediate you know it's immediate threat and well what's immediate threat like current i have to wait till you shoot at me that's that's the extreme interpretation and i don't think that's the case but you know, the, the 392 argument is the sniper shot, right? <clears throat> the sniper shot where the hostage is not in danger right now, but was in danger before. And uh, we put out a position paper on that. And uh, it was a little controversial, but really the point was, it depends on where you work, like you said. Know where you work. Know the DA in the community, right? goes back to basic law enforcement strategy. You have to comply with the law and policy, but also to community expectations. And that's where it's different throughout the state. Any thoughts on that when it comes to canines? 835A 
is a disaster. That's what happens when you have a compromise and you come up with a use of force standard that everybody has to try to interpret and follow. I think they confuse the terms immediate versus imminent. And so now our poor law enforcement officers out there have to determine, is this going to happen right now? Is it going to happen in two seconds? Is it going to happen in two minutes? Is it going to happen in two days? That's a lot to ask our personnel to think when all these things are happening. On canine, I go back to a comment I made earlier. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I think we need to now focus more on surrenders than getting bites. So talking about canines. Is this a situation where we can call our dog off? Maybe we can use a flashbang to get him out. Maybe we can use a can of clear out gas to get him out. Is there something we can do other than having to use our dog? Because as we see in this new assembly bill regarding our dogs, they want to take away the ability for a dog to bite. I don't disagree with not using dogs in crowd control situations. I believe that. I don't think dogs should be anywhere near crowd control. Unfortunately, law enforcement made some huge mistakes in the civil rights movement in the 60s by misusing dogs, and we're going to pay that price forever. Shame on them. We should be smarter now. We should be better trained on how we're going to do things. Dogs should be kenneled up and not used at all in civil rights uh, movement protests or any other kind of crowd control situation. So let's take that off the table. I don't disagree with that part. But the ability to have a dog to apprehend a suspect in certain circumstances, I think we still need to use that. And I'm scared to death we're going to lose that ability because of bad canine decisions being made out there. Yeah, we we definitely, as a profession throughout the country, can give them the stick to beat us with by by not acknowledging and, and making adjustments fast enough. And, and that, again, depends on where you work a little bit. But as we all have experienced in the last several years, what happens in a car stop in Maine can absolutely impact California. And and we see protests all the time. And as a matter of fact, uh, the French are not thanking us for losing the ability to use the carotid because it had nothing to do with anything on their continent. And yet they are no longer allowed to use the carotid. So very good uh, analogy there. Any other thoughts on how we can better deploy our canines? And I, I think you make it just because you can doesn't mean you should. And and I think that's pretty common in California, uh, that, that philosophy, uh, as far as if you compare it across the country, for sure. But we still have, you know, work that can be done. And and especially for those of us that are older and we've trained a certain way for decades, it's very hard to not have a specialty bias. And by specialty bias, I mean, if I'm a SWAT guy, I'm a canine guy, I'm an H&T guy, uh, I'm a sniper, uh, whatever, I'm a less lethal guy. I, that's the hammer. You know, if I have only a hammer, then everything's a nail. So I have that specialty bias. I can solve almost any problem you want with a canine. And in reality, yeah, you could. Like, they're great tools. But there's things you probably don't need to do with a canine that you do. I travel all over this country. I talk to handlers and SWAT operators, patrol personnel from all over the country. California, in my opinion, is still one of the best trained states anywhere. 
people call me from all over the country asking, hey, can I get a canine policy from LA County Sheriff's or LAPD or SWAT policy or whatever from California? They want to know what our post-SWAT guidelines are. They want to know what our post-canine guidelines are because I think we lead the nation in training. So when we fail to keep up with training in California, that's a problem. When I see canine handlers not being able to call their dog off verbally from a position of safety, they go up and physically remove their dog, but yet the dog is not outing when told to do so. And again, with body-worn cameras, they can be a great tool. But if your dog's not outing and you're not removing your dog properly, that's all going to be caught in body-worn camera. And we're going to be showing that to jurors and judges. And the world is going to see that our training has failed. That's where we're failing right now. That our handlers, and not all, I know there's some really well-trained handlers out there. I know many of them. And I thank you for doing your job properly and knowing your craft. There are other videos out there that show that our handlers have failed in their training for whatever reason. And we're seeing on body-worn cameras that are being released on YouTube and critical incident videos to other agencies where they're failing in their training and that dog is not coming off as soon as they're told to do so. Because remember, part of excessive force is not necessarily the initial use of force in and of itself, but the length of time that a dog is on the bite can be considered to be the excessive force. And if that dog is not popping off when you tell it to release, that's a problem. And we have to deal with that. Just like any other use of force. Yes. You know, even shooting, right? You shoot, you assess, you decide what you're going to do. And so the, that, that ruler is applied to everything. And even the land shark, it's applied to. Well, first of all, I would never joke about dogs being land sharks. <laughs> So I object to that on my lawyer. Uh, your objection is sustained. Thank and you. I, and I blame the wine versus the whiskey <laughs> that I normally drink. Yeah, we're cutting you off. But the one thing I'd like to leave everybody with is I fear losing dogs, but yet dogs are the one use of force that you can recall. You can't recall a taser or a bullet or some of our other uses of force. I don't want to lose that ability to have the dog to save our officers and deputies, to save people's lives. Because if we lose dogs, I would not be surprised if our officer-involved shootings or deputy-involved shootings tend to escalate now because we've lost another less than lethal option. And that's what concerns me. Yeah, and appropriately so. And as much as I make light of uh, making a joke about land sharks, you're, you're wholeheartedly. And I'll, I'll sum it up because I spent today with Gene and uh, the, the direct quote that Gene's beating around the bush about. And you, you can write this down. This is a good one. You can recall a dog, but you cannot recall a bullet. That's a tattoo that I will allow everybody to get because everybody that's knows I'm anti-tattoo. But that's a good one to get. So your last comment, you talked a little bit about body-worn cameras, how they help and hurt you. And uh, you and I happen to be up here um, with Missy, and uh, it's kind of a combination training uh, where we're talking about the why, why we have body-worn cameras, the history, you know, going back to Robert Peel and the social contract and transparency and legitimacy and all those things, that those buzzwords that we hear and how we've inherited a profession who hid the ball a little bit every now and again. Not not one particular place, but, ver, you know, our history, like you said, um, force is a messy thing. And sometimes we apply it inappropriately. And 
as we renegotiate the social contract with the public constantly, we learn what we can and can't do. And so you and I are up here discussing the why behind body-worn cameras. We're discussing uh, how to train and implement body-worn cameras better. And we're discussing the how, how we use them, how uh, they help us with use of force. They help us with civil cases. They help us with uh, lessons learned and, and debriefing and, and learning from those deals. So let's since we're here, and this is kind of a hot topic for you and I, and then uh, we, we actually met agencies from uh, all around the area that are still implementing body-worn cameras. And as much as it's easy to say, well, you know, a bunch of us have had them for a long time, there's still lessons to be learned. And if you don't get anything out of listening to the Cato podcast, remember that history repeats itself and that it is your responsibility to learn from the lessons of history. And uh, if Gene has taught you anything about his 40 years of experience is that we continually repeat the same mistakes, including tattoos. So back to uh, a little bit of body-worn cameras, um, your experience, uh, you've defended lots of folks without body-worn cameras, with them, with audio, without. Uh, whether we like body-worn cameras or not, they're good, bad, indifferent, they're here. They're here to stay. And what are some of the, the trends you've seen uh, in body-worn cameras, in, specifically to special units like canine, SWAT? But in reality, those same things apply to everybody. They do. And let's talk about history repeating itself. When history repeats itself nowadays, the price goes up. So a case that may have cost us $250,000 on a wrongful death case 10 years ago is now worth 10 times that. So yeah, when history repeats itself, it just means it's more expensive. So we want to avoid that. But uh, shout out to Placer County for bringing us up and my partner, Missy Lynn. They're doing it right. They're about to implement their body-worn camera program. And they decided, well, let's bring some people up to talk about what their experience is with BWCs. Lessons learned, what works, what doesn't, what we need to be aware of. I wish more agencies did something like this. And I know there are agencies that are about to implement body-worn cameras that are bringing us in to talk. For example, LA County Sheriff's Special Enforcement Bureau, SWAT and K-9 and every other unit within SEB are about to go to body-worn cameras. We're coming in to, test, uh, to provide training for them uh, next week to talk about these issues. Uh, we've gotten contacts from people that are up here in Placer County that are other agencies saying, we wish we had done something like this five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, whenever they went to BWCs. So shout out to Placer for being at the forefront of doing something differently. There's a lot of buy-in. We're talking both corrections, patrol, and professional support staff. So they all understand what's going on. What I've learned from BWCs, canine SWAT, you're going to be out there on an operation for an hour, two hours, four hours, five, whatever it is. Don't get complacent and start talking about who you're going out with, your personal life telling off-color jokes, belching and letting gas out, because uh, all that gets picked up on your BWCs. We have to turn that over. So even though the suspect never heard you, didn't even see you, and you're out there for a period of time, remember, I have to turn all that over because it's called discoverable. Whether it's admissible is up to the judge, 
But we have to turn all that over so the other side's going to hear all this and they're going to find a way to convince the judge that it is part of your case. So let's say you're just talking, say a SWAT operation, and you're talking, hey, if this guy comes out, we better be prepared to shoot and kill him. Whoa, have you already prophesied what's about to happen? Because they're going to use that against you. So we have to be really careful what we're saying. And I know you're out there for several hours and you just start talking. That's just human nature. doesn't mean you're a bad person. But if it comes out inappropriate, that's going to be used against you. So we got to train to avoid that. Uh, BWCs, I think, are, it's an expectation by judges and jurors. They expect to be entertained. They want to see what actually happened. As you and I have discussed, DAs will not file a case nowadays if there isn't any body-worn camera to prove what the officers or deputies are saying. So it's there's this expectation that agencies are going to have it, and we have to deal with that. And that that goes back to your your contract with the community. You know that's that's their expectation, and they fund that. Then, and that's what we're doing, right? Because we we police to the level that the community expects us to, and we don't always agree with that. But that's you know part of our duty to educate the public and leaders that we deal with of what what the expectations are. And, and that's what we talked about today. And we don't need to do the whole spiel today about it. But there's things body-worn cameras capture that our eye can't capture. There's things our, our eye captures that the camera can't capture. And there's limitations. And to educate the public and your your local leaders, for you, those of you that work in a county or city, then that's your city council, your city attorney, your county council, your, your board of supervisors, this, this isn't a panacea, as we all already know, but that doesn't mean they know that. They, they watch CSI, and they think we're going to solve this crime in 45 minutes and find a molecule uh, behind the couch that it makes it a slam dunk case, and uh, life is messier than that. And so I just thought it was worth bringing up, especially when we talk about canines, because you see of force, even when appropriate applied, is messy. And we need to better explain to the public that we use the least amount of force necessary to bring about a, the most peaceful resolution possible, and then remind them that in reality, the suspect has control of how much peace there is. If they surrender, then no force will be used. But it's more than just messy. It's ugly. It's dangerous and it's deadly at times. And we have to be able to explain why we use that level of force. And as we talked about in our class, when you're on BWC and it's activated, don't be scared to narrate what's happening. Hey, I'm seeing the suspect. He's armed with whatever type of weapon, a sword, a gun, a knife, whatever. And the light is going down. The sun is coming down. I'm having a hard time seeing them. They're starting to advance towards me. Use that tool for your advantage and set it up so you know you're going to be sued or you may engage in a use of force. Let's talk about why that is going to happen. Let me hear your announcement. Stop or I will shoot you. Stop or I'll send my dog. Why aren't you surrendering? Watch your language. As we talked about in our class, we can defend one or two F-bombs when it's every other word. Judges and jurors look upon that as being unprofessional. And this all comes down again. How professional are you? Do you know your craft? How likable, believable, incredible you are? So all of that pay, plays a part and it will all be captured on the BWC. 
So let's be really the best we can. As my, part, uh, my partner, Missy Elena, likes to say, you have the chance to make a good movie every time you turn on the camera. Is it going to be a comedy? Is it going to be a horror film? Or is it going to be a true documentary of what you did that day? You get to decide. That's your prerogative. No one else can make that decision for you. That's well said. Well said. I'm going to charge for my commentary tonight, Marcus. I thought you might. I thought you might. I will pay in whiskey. I will pay in whiskey. Sold. So we just wanted to have a quick conversation, kind of talk about the trends, what's going on, and particularly addressing this this canine thing, which we've been watching for the last couple of years ago across the country. Um, it's now live alive and well in California. We'll see it's at the very early stages, but uh, as we get information, we'll absolutely share it. But again, it, it still comes back to the same thing. If you misuse a tool that we're given, it will take the tool away from us. And we have a lot of tools that are great as long as we use them in the right circumstance. So be a student of your profession. Be committed to your profession because we're all in this together. What happens in Memphis, Tennessee will directly impact what happens in California and vice versa. And what happens in the United States directly affects France, apparently. And uh, they're pretty mad about that. Just as a side note, pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, we will put in the show notes uh, Gene's contact information. If you need anything, you have any questions, uh, obviously, uh, Gene's committed his entire adult life to serving the law enforcement community. He uh, continues to be involved with Cato and was literally at the founding of Cato with Ken. And so we wanted to have a conversation real quick about his history because it's important as members of Cato that we remember our past, that we learn from those people that made this great organization. And I don't take that lightly because I spend half my time cursing you guys for setting the bar so high and then figuring out what I can do to push this rock up the hill a little bit more for the next generation. So if you'd like to volunteer for Cato, there's plenty of work. Uh, reach out because we need your help. We're, our, our mission uh, started out to serve tactical teams and has expanded to improving tactics for everybody. And that's patrol critical incident leadership, tactical liability, reach out, get involved. We hope we provided some value. If you like what we're doing, please, please share it with a friend. And uh, as always, we welcome your feedback, good or bad. Thank you, Gene, for being here. And uh, I'll start figuring out what I have to pay you by the minute for your time. Well, I think everyone out there who's listening to this podcast, what you do is truly appreciated. And that's why I defend you because you're willing to defend me, my family, my neighbors, my community. So don't ever forget that. You are appreciated. Be safe out there and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catotraining.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catotraining.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice. 